As was mentioned, if you're using the Bible in your seats, you should find Ezekiel 11 on page 592. And um, we're looking at verses 14 to 21 for a final time this morning. There's a humorous scene in the movie The Princess Bride, which is well-loved by many of you, I'm sure, um, where the hero, Wesley, challenges a villain to a battle of wits. And uh, Wesley does this to free Buttercup, who's the damsel in distress there whom the villain has captured. And Wesley says to the villain that he has put iocane powder, a deadly poison, in one of two cups of wine. And he places one in front of the villain and one in front of himself. And he challenges the villain, who claims to be a brilliant guy, to figure out which cup he's poisoned and then to drink the other one and Wesley will drink the remaining cup. So the villain reasons back and forth about which Wesley might have poisoned and then he settles the matter in his own mind. He picks up his own cup, he drinks it, and he falls over dead. As Wesley is then setting Buttercup free, she remarks, to think all that time it was your cup which was poisoned. And Wesley replies, they were both poisoned. I spent the last few years building up an immunity to iocane powder. Building up an immunity to iocane powder. I I think that's a good analogy for what God promises to do for us in today's passage. Only the poison isn't iocane powder. Rather, it's idolatry. In Ezekiel's prophecy here, God promises to raise up a people who have built up an immunity to idolatry. Let's remember the context of this prophecy. Ezekiel's people, the Jews, are in a very precarious time. The date is around 590 BC. The empire of Babylon has grown powerful on the international scene and is threatening the very existence of the Jews. Some of the Jews have already been taken into exile, while others have been left behind and allowed to continue to exist in Judah and Jerusalem. And as best anyone can tell, these remaining Jews are the fortunate ones. They've escaped capture and exile. They're still in God's promised land. They still have God's temple close by. And so they remark in verse 15, speaking of those already in exile, they are far away from the Lord. This land was given to us as our possession. If you've been here the past few weeks, we've seen the theology that was driving that attitude. The, The Jews believed that it was better to be close to God's temple Because God was present in his temple and this offered them protection. As long as they stayed close to the temple, they would be safe, they would be blessed, they would remain and prosper. Meanwhile, those in Jerusalem looked down on the others who'd been taken into exile. After all, those ones were now far away from God's presence. They were now scattered among the pagan nations. And from a Jewish perspective at that time, this meant the exiles were tainted and defiled and unclean, rejected and cast off by God. Well, in this passage, Ezekiel challenges this perspective and turns it on its head. He brings a message from God saying, no, it's just the opposite. God has actually decreed judgment on you in Jerusalem at the center, the center of religion, the center of power. It's those in exile at the margins whom God is with right now as a sanctuary to them, verse 16. And it's from among those exiles that God is going to preserve a remnant of his people ultimately. 
One day, God will bring those people back to the land to be God's people and to continue God's saving work through them. Why? Why was God choosing those at the margins over those at the center? Well, one reason was because those at the center were not as pure or righteous as they thought. In fact, Ezekiel accuses them of incredible idolatry and injustice. The people in Jerusalem were worshiping the Lord on the one hand, but on the other, they were worshiping idols. If you read the rest of Ezekiel, this, is, is, this note is sounded again and again. And, and these people were also filling the streets of Jerusalem with blood. They were oppressing their fellow Jews. And so these Jerusalemites were utterly corrupt, and yet they couldn't even see it. They thought that they were God's special ones under God's protection and blessing. But God says, no, I won't underwrite that sort of pious arrogance. Instead, I'm rejecting you and I'm going to the margins to those suffering in exile. Granted, they're there because my judgment came on them first. They also were guilty of idolatry and injustice. And now they've become further defiled among the pagan nations. But I'm going to step into their lives and I'm going to change that. Verse 17, this is what the sovereign Lord says to the exiles. I will gather you from the nations and bring you back from the countries where you have been scattered and I will give you back the land of Israel. And here's how I'm going to do it, God continues. Verse 19, I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Isn't it amazing? God has to do everything. God's people are not worthy to be brought back into God's presence, God's land. Their hearts are corrupt, idolatrous, unfaithful. So what does God do? God says, well, I guess I'm just going to have to give them new hearts too then. I'm going to have to take out their old dead hearts and give them new undivided hearts, hearts which love me and only me, hearts which don't just sort of love me, on the one hand, fulfilling their religious duties, but then turning around and chasing after idols as well. No, God says, I will give them undivided hearts, hearts which are fully faithful to me, hearts which uh, can give them an immunity to the temptations of idolatry. And look at the two results which will happen in these people's lives once they've received these new undivided hearts. First in verse 20, then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws, the Lord says. And then second, back in verse 18, they will return to the land and remove all its vile images and detestable idols. Two tasks, two challenges, two results of having new Undivided hearts. First, these people will follow God's commands. They'll be faithful to God. They'll live the way God teaches them to live. And then second, they will also reform others. They'll stand up for God and they'll cleanse God's people, God's land, by, by clearing out all the competing allegiances, the, the, the idols of the land. That's God's promise that this people will both be true to God themselves and also become transforming agents to others. Now, if you know the rest of the biblical story, you know that these promises came true. First, to a small extent, they came true after 70 years of exile, when under Cyrus the Persian, God opened the way for his exiles to come back to the land. There they rebuilt 
the temple. They rebuilt the city of Jerusalem under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah, the prophecies of Malachi and Zechariah. But to a significant extent, these uh, reforms ultimately failed. The people did not ultimately turn back to God with their whole hearts. They did not keep his commands. And so the New Testament tells us that it was when Jesus came that finally God began giving those who believed in Jesus new hearts, undivided hearts, to follow God's ways wholeheartedly and to also turn others back to God and away from idols. And the gospel accounts in the book of Acts tell that story. And that's why the New Testament writers in Hebrews 8, for example, they quote Ezekiel's prophecy about new hearts, and they say, yes, through Jesus, this promise is finally coming true. Which means that it's coming true for you and for me if we have put our faith in Jesus. It means that we who were among those out on the margins, spiritually speaking, out among the nations, that we have been invited back to God into God's presence to be close to God and to be counted among God's people. We have been given new hearts, undivided hearts, which means two things. First, it means that God has given us hearts which beat for God alone. Hearts which desire, verse 20, to follow God's decrees and to be careful to keep his laws. And second, it means that we have been given Reforming hearts, verse 18, which desire to remove all the vile images and detestable idols which remain among God's people. Question, is that what your heart desires? How, are, how aware are you of your heart, of what your heart desires? Here's what I want to urge on us this morning. If God has given us undivided hearts, Hearts which will not only resist idolatry ourselves, but will challenge and encourage others to resist it as well, then we are going to need what Wesley needed in The Princess Bride. We are going to need an immunity to the poison which threatens to destroy us. We are going to need to build up an immunity to idolatry. We're going to need hearts which are strong, which are not easily tempted to chase after other idols. Because we've been looking for the past two weeks at how idolatry is not just an ancient problem. It's a very modern one as well. Now granted, most of us aren't tempted to bow down or offer incense to small statues made in the shape of pagan gods. But idolatry is just as much a temptation for us today as it ever was for the Jews then. Because what is an idol? Well, it's a, it's a physical or, or tangible expression of some power which promises to give us what we most want. And so as Greg Howe pointed out last Sunday, for the ancient Jews who were farmers, what did they want? Well, they wanted their flocks to have lots of young so their herds would grow larger and their wealth would increase. They wanted their uh, fields to produce lots of crops um, so that they would have lots of food to eat and to sell for a profit. They wanted protection from raiders and from invading armies who might try to come and steal their land and their possessions. And so they turned to gods like Baal, the strong storm god who was thought to control the weather and could help them in war, they believed. And they turned to Asherah, the fertility goddess, who was thought to bless fertility of, of crops and of herds. 
Instead of trusting the Lord who had promised to be their God and to provide for their needs, God's people went looking elsewhere for help and for blessing and for support. And this is a very modern phenomenon, right? We want the same things they wanted. We want security and safety and prosperity and affluence. And we don't believe in all those supernatural gods anymore, but we still have the same desires and we still turn again and again to other sources of power to secure our safety and our prosperity rather than placing our dependence wholeheartedly on the Lord. And so what are the big idols of today? Technological progress, career success, nationalism, military strength, Also sexual freedom and uh, relational fulfillment. None of them totally bad in and of themselves. All of them realities of life. But the idolatry comes when we put our trust in these things when we should be trusting God. The idolatry comes when we give too much of ourselves to these idols. Too much of our time, too much of our effort, too much of our worry. And there's not enough of ourselves left to give to God. The idolatry comes when we make compromises in our priorities, in our standards, in our morals to chase after these other things instead of chasing after God. And boy, it's so much easier to see other people's idolatry than to see our own, isn't it? (laughs) I can tell you that the church around the world looks at us in America and they scratch their heads. When I was living in Central Europe, I had Christians come up to me and say of American Christians, why do they chase after money so and and spend most of it on themselves? Why are they so concerned about their own comfort and so little concerned about putting Jesus first? Don't they listen to the Bible? (laughs) And here's what I want to stress this morning as we look at Ezekiel's prophecy. It's bad enough when we run after idols and it results in our not following God's decrees or keeping God's laws. That's bad enough. But what's even worse is when our idolatry also results in our having no strength, no passion, no moral courage to remove the vile images and detestable idols for others, to challenge, to encourage others to give up their idols as well. How can I come to you and and gently, lovingly, but truthfully challenge you to give up your idols if I'm not giving up any of my idols? Or, Or look at our nation. How can the church stand up and call our nation to trust God, to put God first, if we're not even doing it ourselves? If we are going to stand at this moment in history as a prophetic voice to call people back to God, we, like Wesley and the Princess Bride, need to develop an immunity to the idolatry all around us. We need new hearts. We need undivided hearts. We need idol-proof hearts. This wouldn't be so important if followers of Jesus were just called to live in a religious ghetto, in a safe, protected environment, cut off from the temptations of the world, then we could just worry about keeping our own lives clean and making sure that that we were following God's will ourselves. 
But Jesus hasn't called us to that. Jesus has given us a mission to get out there and be engaged, to be in the world as salt and light, as witnesses, as ambassadors for him, mixing it up with all kinds of people. And this means the idols are going to be all around us. The temptations are going to be right there. And so we've got to be extra strong. We've got to be idol-proof. Not only for our own sake, but for the sake of others. Because when our hearts are divided and prone to wander after other things, it not only affects us, it affects others as well. Imagine if I'm addicted to alcohol. And you come and you try to help me. You come to the bar where I spend my time. But, but you're not strong in your own sobriety. And so instead of helping me, you fall into drinking too. You've been no help to me then, right? You've now joined me and we're both in trouble together. No, I need you to be strong, not only for your sake, but for mine too. That's why we need hearts that are idol-proof. So question... How do we become idol-proof? How do we become idol-proof? Well, it begins with getting an undivided heart. And as we've seen again and again these past couple months as we've looked at Ezekiel, we can't earn an undivided heart. We can't will our hearts to become undivided. There's only one way to get a new heart, an undivided heart. And that's for God to give them to us. We, we just have to ask for them. For undivided hearts. The only way to get a new heart. Is for God to give you one. For free. As a gift. And guess what? The New Testament makes clear. That if you're a follower of Jesus. If you've really entrusted your life to Jesus. Then Jesus has already given you. That new heart. So. Question. What are you doing with it? What are you doing with the new heart? What am I doing with it? Are are we guarding our new hearts? Are are we living out of our new hearts? Or are we ignoring them? Right? Because as we've seen in past weeks, our hearts don't function alone. They, They are the center, the control center of our lives. But we also have minds that feed information to our hearts. Maybe good information, maybe false information. And our hearts make decisions based on that information. We also have emotions and desires which tug and pull on our hearts. So we experience battles within, right? We can let our new hearts lead or, or we can let our new hearts get pushed to the side by other influences. We can guard our hearts and live out of our hearts or we can lose touch with our hearts and neglect our hearts. I can tell you that when I first surrendered my life to Jesus and God planted a new heart in me, lots of stuff began to change in my life very quickly. My life priorities shifted. I had been motivated by a desire to make a lot of money. But very quickly I realized my heart now wanted to devote my life to helping other people. A new love for people started to grow in my heart, which hadn't been there before. I also grew hungry to know God. I hadn't been hungry before. I wanted to read God's word. I wanted to talk to God in prayer. This was all because I now had a new heart beating within me. And that undivided heart wanted only one thing. It wanted to know God and to please God. And I was letting that heart have its way. I was was living out of that new heart. But along the way, I've sometimes gotten uh, distracted and tripped up. 
distracted by other priorities, by other possibilities, tripped up by temptations, by other desires. It's a long road. It's a long journey. (laughs) Transformation doesn't happen all at once. It happens a little bit at a time, step by step. And just because we begin well doesn't mean that we're going to end well. Whether my new heart continues to transform my whole life depends on whether I nurture it. If my mind gets distracted by other priorities, other temptations, other values, if I give in to other desires, my my new heart can grow cold. It can get lost or buried within me. That heart beats with with undivided devotion to God, but, but we can still get distracted and lured and enticed to other loves and to idols. And when we do, we, we not only become less passionate, less committed to walking in God's ways, but we also have far less focus and far less courage and far less energy and resolve to remove the vile images and detestable idols around us. To be a positive, transformative influence for others uh, and a source of uh, spiritual encouragement and, and loving challenge for others, we need to r- retain that focus and that courage and that resolve and that energy. We need hearts that are idol-proof. If we're going to be of any use to one another and to this world, we are going to have to develop an immunity to idolatry. We are going to have to become idol-proof. Let me close with, with a way that we can begin. Gypsy Smith was a man who had little form, uh, formal education, but who had a powerful ministry back in the early part of the 1900s. It seemed that everywhere that Smith went, spiritual revival broke out. People lay down their idolatries. They sought God with fresh passion and resolve. And Smith came to a certain town, and, and a, a Christian there cornered him and asked him what his secret was to the success of his ministry. And this is what Smith told him. He said, go home, draw a circle on the floor with chalk, kneel down in the circle, confess your sins and shortcomings to God, and then commit to God that you will do anything God asks you to do, and you will go anywhere God asks you to go. That will be the beginning of revival. It begins inside the chalk circle. Now let me ask you, does that scare you? To, to tell God you'll, you'll do anything or go anywhere he sends you? Well, here's what we have to remember. If God has given you a new heart, then that's what your heart ultimately wants anyway. God has given you an undivided heart which won't really be satisfied with anything less. Are you in touch with your heart? We've got to get out of the way. We've got to let our new hearts, our undivided hearts, lead us. What's holding us back? What are we clinging to instead? The author Stephen Mansfield tells an illuminating story about what we cling to in his book, ReChurch. He was once the director of a college residence hall, and he was paged one day to deal with an emergency situation in which the paramedics were also on their way. Here's what he discovered when he arrived. He recounts, the scene was near madness. 
First, I saw an attractive woman who kept bending at the waist, covering her face with her hands and wailing, oh my, oh my, with ever-increasing volume. I had no sooner taken her in when a short, short balding man charged me, his finger violently jabbing into my chest while he yelled that I would suffer the tortures of the damned in court. I will sue your university for all that you're worth, the man raged. Just beyond the wailing woman and the jabbing man was a university security guard. I'm fairly sure that at that moment he was quietly celebrating the university policy that prevented him from dealing with the public. He stared at me blankly, yet with one eyebrow raised slightly as though to say, it's all yours, Bubba, let's see what you can do. At the center of this bedlam was Timmy. I knew that was his name because his beanie baseball cap, his matching sweatshirt, and yes, even the socks that rose from his saddle shoes to just below his neatly pressed shorts all sported the word Timmy. And Timmy was in trouble. I knew that Timmy was in trouble because he was screaming as loudly as any child ever has. The source of his troubles seemed to be that his right hand had been swallowed by a candy machine. There was Timmy with his shoulder jammed up against the huge machine. From time to time, he would angrily try to pull his arm free, but he couldn't. Then, too, there were the trickles of blood that were working their way down Timmy's arm, threatening to stain the sleeve of that sweatshirt that bore his name. It was the blood that seemed to ignite the aggrieved cries of the woman, who I soon understood was Timmy's mother. She would point to, at the blood, return her hands to her face, wail with the grief of the ages, and commence bending at the waist. The man, of course, was Timmy's father, and in the time-honored manner of men, he expressed his concern for his son by finding another man and threatening him. The man he chose was me. As a well-trained college dorm director, I had absolutely no idea what to do. Still taking stock of the four people in front of me, I decided my best chance was with Timmy. I walked over to him, ran my hand up his arm into the candy machine to determine what was really happening, and, and I tried to be comforting. It was then that I noticed that Timmy's arm was taut in a way that suggested perhaps he wasn't really stuck after all. By then, the paramedics had arrived, but I waved them off. I stepped back from the screaming, streaming boy, looked him firmly in the eye, and said, Son, let go of the candy bar. The mother stopped her wailing. The father backed away from my right ear in which he had been screaming for several deafening minutes. The paramedics and the security guard looked at me as though I had just denied Christ on the cross. Everyone was silent, waiting to see what would happen next. And Timmy, mercifully quiet for the first time, pulled his hand out of the machine. That's how we get free from idolatry. That's what Gypsy Smith is challenging us to do in that chalk circle. To let go of the candy bars, which are competing with our hearts, which are dividing our hearts, our undivided hearts, which want to beat only for God, which were created to beat only for God. That's the first step to becoming idol-proof. And as we do that, we find freedom, we find courage, we find power, not only to live for God ourselves, but also humbly to help others as well. As we sing the closing song now, if you need to take that step, 
this morning, I invite you to come up and take a piece of chalk in case you don't have your own. <laughs>